0: The scripture for today comes from Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us like this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David." hosanna in the highest and he entered jerusalem and went into the temple and when when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to bethany with the 12. this is the word of god to us
1: be to god hey guys good morning It's good to see everybody, glad you're here. If uh, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Josh Curry, I'm one of the pastors, and we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, so if you've got a Bible, you can start finding Mark chapter 11, and I'm gonna go ahead and pray for you and ask you to pray for me, and we're gonna dive in. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet us today in both the current reality of what Jesus has done that we might actually feed on Jesus, be encouraged by Jesus, commune with him. The fact that our sins have already been atoned for, the fact that the goodness of your presence has already broken into the world. All that's now and all that's ours and all that's available. Let us see it today. And at the very same time, Father, would you give us renewed grace and a new understanding of the kind of waiting we're called to do? the longing that's real, the desires in our heart that aren't going to be met until we see Jesus on the great day. And Holy Spirit, would you take this moment through the word that you inspired and would you open our hearts to be rooted and grounded in Jesus, to let go of things we need to let go of and to be formed and shaped. We love you. We need you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so this has been a really fun stretch for me with my reading. Um, this has been a little season where I've kind of given myself permission to not read stuff that I have to read and just read stuff that I want to read. So typically I'm working through a lot of dead guys and thinking about theology and philosophy and shifts in culture. And for the last few months, I've kind of given myself permission other than just sort of studying God's word and reading commentaries for Mark to just read weird stuff that I dig. And so uh, for the last couple of months, I've read a lot of fiction. I've enjoyed Franzen's new novel, crossroads. is really interesting. And I've been reading a lot of biographies. Like I'm kind of doing a deep dive on Anthony Bourdain right now. I love Bourdain. He's so tragic and so brilliant. And in the midst of all this reading of just kind of novels and biographies, fun stuff, um, one of the things that's been really interesting is just thinking about authorial voice. Like what is the author telling you? And not just what are they telling you, but what are they not telling you? What are they leaving out? What are they adding? And it's amazing how some authors give you minute details and some authors keep things really streamlined and there's an economy of words. And I say all that because this week as I was getting ready to walk through this chapter known as the triumphal entry that both Mark and Luke and Matthew talk about, it's fascinating to me that Mark's approach is almost totally different than what Luke and Matthew do. Luke and Matthew, when they write their gospels, they don't just tell you what happened in this moment, which is no doubt the climax of Jesus's earthly ministry. This is the moment where the confrontation's happening. He's been teaching and preaching and doing miracles for three years, and now he's moving to Jerusalem. The end is coming. The atonement is drawing near. And what happens in the other gospels is those writers, they tell you the events, they narrate what's happening, but then they sort of interpret it on the fly. They tell you what it means and they tell you why these particular things happened. And what's crazy about Mark is Mark is is the most sparse of all the gospel writers. Like Mark is so clear and careful with what he includes in his gospel, but also what he leaves out of his gospel. And what's amazing is that when he gives us the account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, he just doesn't make any editorial comments. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't unpack it. He doesn't even tell us in particular what's rooted and grounded in the things that are said. In fact, he lets it be a little bit obscure. And I think that's really interesting because it wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that the disciples themselves understood this thing that just happened. Like, they didn't get it. They thought Jesus was doing one thing, and he was doing something totally different. And so today, as we open up this text, what Mark is really doing is he's inviting us to open up the whole Bible and try to make sense of this event, try to understand what it means. And here's what's crazy about this moment in Scripture. It really is something that if the Spirit of God would give us understanding of, Like I'm not a good enough teacher to do this. I can't change anybody's heart. But if the Spirit of God in this moment would take us in this text to the very depth of what's being revealed about Jesus, it would literally change everything in our lives. I mean, if you've been walking with Jesus for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years... And you see this text as it really is, and it invites you into worshiping Jesus and understanding what it means that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Like that's fuel for your worship. That's fuel for your longevity. That's fuel to fight against sin. That's encouragement in the midst of all the things that are no doubt broken in your life and broken in my life. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a moment where you get a really clear invitation to who Jesus is and who Jesus is not. So many of my friends that are not Christians have walked away from a version of Jesus that's not even the real Jesus. And in this text, what we have is the true, authentic, real Jesus as the fulfillment of everything God said he was going to do throughout the history of his dealings with Israel. And in this moment, in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up to the controversial and to the holy city, Jerusalem, to do something that changes the very fabric of the universe. And that's not an overstatement. And so take your Bible. I'm going to show you three things from our text that Mark is highlighting Both with what he says and with what he doesn't say. Uh, Three things about Jesus. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's the long-awaited king. His advent, his arrival is on the heels of literally thousands of years of preparation. This is not a random thing that happens. Um, The coming of Jesus is not a microwave burrito that you pop into the oven or pop into the microwave and get out in two minutes. I mean, this thing that Jesus does has been crock potting for eons. So take your Bible, look at this, verse eight of chapter 11. And many spread out their cloaks on the road and they spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed him were shouting. And these words are really important and they're really ancient. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, one of the things that's hard about being a person trying to wrestle with the claims of Jesus in 2021 is that we're so divorced from the background in which Jesus showed up in. And what we have in these words, in the words of the crowd, as they're shouting, we actually have an invitation to look back on everything that God did to get ready for this moment. It's rooted and grounded in the past. And without understanding our past, we won't understand our present or our identity in Jesus. What's crazy is a person that hates waiting, I despise waiting. I don't want to wait for anything. As a person that hates waiting, when you go back and interact with the Old Testament, it's shocking that God's relationship with Israel is just marked by an almost default mode of patience and waiting. Take Abraham, who's considered the father of faith. God spoke to him in the wilderness and promised that he would have a son, and through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, God didn't keep that promise until Abraham turned 100 years old, waiting and longing and hoping God was going to keep his word and trying to remember the character of God as God had revealed him that he's not a liar. And finally, after all of those years, at the age of 100, that child was born or think about Moses. Um, The story of Moses is crazy. He was raised in the palace, familiar with Pharaoh's house, um, was a man of luxury in a moment of anger and both being confused about what's just and what's unjust. He kills an Egyptian slave master And then he departs from Egypt. He goes and hides out in the wilderness of Midian. And we don't have any record of God speaking to him or interacting with him for 40 years. For 40 years, Moses is just looking over his shoulder, hoping that the Egyptians don't show up. 40 years and God's silent. And 40 years of wondering if maybe the purpose of his life just came down to just mere survival, being a fugitive from the law. And then after 40 years, God shows up in a burning bush and he talks to Moses and he changes the course of his life and he changes the entire trajectory of history. And then we have in the book of Exodus, God revealing to us that it was 430 years of crying and waiting before God delivered his people from Egypt. Like, I mean, we don't even have a category for that. I I love getting to go help our church plants in the UK because it's just so weird walking into pubs that are like three times older than our nation. we just don't have a grid for that, man. We're Americans. We think 200 years is a really long time. And the truth is, God is patient and that patience sometimes feels like an affront to what we think he should be doing. That was 430 years, guys, of mom's, weeping over their babies who were born into slavery. 430 years of husbands not being able to defend their wives. 430 years. And then we get to the last Old Testament prophet, and he speaks the oracles of God, and then we have this period called the uh, intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and here's what's crazy about it. Again, for 400 years, God just goes radio silent, The children of Israel are eventually enslaved again under the Roman Empire and they're waiting and no prophets are speaking up and they're wondering if God's gonna keep his word. Is God really who he says he is? Is he gonna do what he said he would do? And then after 400 years of radio silence, we get the last of the Old Testament prophets. We get John the Baptist who proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. And what's happening in this story, what's happening in this text is that the words that they're saying, Hosanna, it has an Old Testament context that reminds us of all of the waiting culminating in this moment where Jesus sets foot on the road to the temple and enters Jerusalem. In the 118th Psalm, we have the one Old Testament mention of this word Hosanna, Hosanna which was a Greek word that they just sort of tried to copy from the Hebrew, the original Hebrew for Hosanna is found in the 118th Psalm, verse 25. Here's how we translate that word Hosanna. The psalmist says this, save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us. Save us, we pray. That word Hosanna in its original context is an embodiment of everything that's desperate and everything that feels fractured and broken in our life that we bring to God, begging for him to meet us. Sometimes the cry of Hosanna was cried out of lips who were waiting on God to meet them because of physical pain and suffering. Psalmist is crying out to God that his bones are wasting away. His flesh is hurting Sometimes that cry, like, God, please meet me, please rescue me, is the psalmist wrestling with his own sin. Like, God, I keep getting owned by this. I know my guilt. I know my shame. Would you please save me from myself? Give me a new heart. Give me a clean conscience. Other times, this cry of Hosanna comes out of a psalmist who's surrounded by his enemies people that hate him, people that want to destroy him, people that are seeking to do him harm. And the cry to God is, hey, will you please remember me? Would you get me out of here? Would you save me? Would you help me? Would you be my rescuer? This cry of Hosanna Hosanna, in its original context is a cry that sort of sums up the entire story of Israel. It's the story of, hey, God, we believe you love us. We believe you see us when are you going to move? When are you going to show up? When are you going to get me out of here? what started to happen over the years, and we don't know exactly how it happened, and it doesn't have its final completion until this moment in Jerusalem, is that that cry of waiting, that cry of longing, that was like a desperate, God, please help me, had started to turn into a cry of worship and adoration. It shifted in its meaning from God, please show up, to praise be God. Praise be to God. He is showing up. And what we have right here is not just a prayer for salvation out of desperate lips, it is that, but it's also a prayer of worship that in the coming of Jesus, the son of David that God promised would come, the Messiah the one who would make all things new, the one who would bring the presence of God back to his people, the one that would cleanse them of their sins, the one that would rescue them from the most vile enemies we all face, sin, Satan, and death. He's shown up and now Hosanna is taking on a new meaning. It's not just a desperate cry, cry to God for rescue. It's a desperate cry for rescue in the context of God rescuing. It's, he's here, he's here. Blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I want you to see, I want you to get, I want you to feel that both of those Hosannas, like that Old Testament context, like, God, when are you going to show up? And that triumphal entry context of like, he showed up. Both of those are true of the Christian life. Because on this side of the cross of Jesus, we have so much that's now in our walk with Jesus. New identities through his death and resurrection. We've been cleansed of our sins. Our sins aren't counted against us. The Father loves you. Like, the Father's not waiting on you to become the future version of you to be with you. In fact, Jesus was cut off so that you would never be cut off you are delighted in, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are chosen. The spirit of God's been given to you so that you would never be alone, even when you feel lonely. There's so much that we have now because Jesus already came. So we can pray in all seriousness as Christians, Hosanna, you showed up. You did rescue me. And yet, listen, There's also so much of the Christian life that's still crying out the first kind of Hosanna. Hey, when are you going to finish what you started? God rescue. Because the great day is not here yet. And there's a lot of promises that have yet to be fulfilled. And there's a lot of waiting that we're still doing. For 2,000 years, the church has been marked by this tension that there's things that we have now that are monumentally good and glorious. And there's things that we are waiting on that we don't yet see, but we're holding on to through faith. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna move into the season of Advent. It's a part of the church calendar where we identify with Israel in waiting for the coming Son of David. And as the church of Jesus, we also remember that we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Right now, there are a thousand things that if you're a Christian, you can thank God for. In the second kind of Hosanna, you saved me. Your forgiveness, the Spirit of God inside of you, to be known, to be forgiven, to be loved, and yet at the very same time, make a mistake. We also are praying the first kind of Hosanna because we still have sin in our flesh. We're still staring down the grave, even though death has been defeated. We're waiting. Some of us are waiting in the midst of our marriages like, God, can you redeem this? Can you make it better? Some of us are waiting on kids to come back to Jesus. Some of us are waiting on our anxiety and our depression, finally loosening it to grip. And all around us, we have evidences of the fact that the kingdom of God is not yet fully here. Creation is still groaning. Things are still broken. The tears have not yet been wiped away. So Jesus is the long-awaited king who shows up. The son of David arrived and he went to the cross and he was raised from the dead and sin, Satan, and death were defeated in that act and yet now we still await the final great day. The day he returns, the day he wipes every tear away, the day that death is no longer just defeated, but the the day that death dies. We're waiting on that. Jesus is number one, he's the long-awaited king. Number two, Jesus is the true king. This story is full of references to the Old Testament to help us wrestle with what's authentic versus what's counterfeit. I want to try to unpack this for you. It's a little weird, a little hard to understand, but I think if you track with me, we'll get this together. In the Old Testament, God promised King David that David would have a son that would reign on his throne, and that promise to David is a two-fold promise, which makes it a little hard for us as Westerners to get. On one hand, God was promising that David's offspring Solomon would be his heir. And that gets fulfilled. On the other hand, God was making a promise about a day way in the future where there would be an offspring of David whose throne would have no ends and who would, who would reign eternally as God's chosen Messiah. Now, I want you to see this because that first sense of the promise that Solomon would be David's heir is under threat in 1 Kings chapter 1. There's a usurper that wants the throne. And I'm going to totally butcher these names, so just feel free to be super judgmental about my pronunciation. I can handle it. I want to show you this this is 1 Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Uh, Quick parentheses, there's an entire parenting conference in that one verse that we need to get to someday. Now look what happens next. He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom and he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. Okay, here's what's happening. This is really important because this is the contrast that we're about to see with Jesus. You have a false king because he's exalting himself. And the way that God chooses kings is God exalts them. David didn't choose the throne. God chose David for the throne. We also are told that he's handsome, which is not just describing his appearance. Like, it's not just saying that he's a good-looking dude like Garrett Johnson. I mean, we could say that. I mean, Garrett Johnson could leave ministry and make a lot of money as a supermodel selling bows and outdoor equipment. He's a handsome man. But that's not what it's saying here. It's actually a really pejorative term. To call him handsome in the context of mentioning Absalom... Is to remind us of the original moment where God sent His prophet to choose David, and God said to the prophet, "Hey, don't look on outward appearance like man does. Man looks at human strength and human intellect. Man looks at image management. Man looks at the way that we can project strength to other people. God doesn't look at any. God's not impressed with any of that. God looks at the heart." And so we have with this guy the fact that he's a counterfeit king, he's a usurper, he's a fake because he looks like all the things that the pagan nations want in a king. And he's not waiting on God, he's exalting himself. And then he pulls in a priest and he pulls in a warrior to help him with his coup. The priest becomes another symbol for not just a false king, but for false religion. He's a priest who was called by God as a priest to speak on behalf of God to God's people and to stand and minister to God's people on behalf of God and to minister to God on behalf of God's people. That's what a priest did. Priests are not allowed to speak for themselves. They're not allowed to have hot takes. They're not allowed to say anything on behalf of God unless God actually said it. And what this guy does is he actually takes matters in his own hands. He corrupts the office of priest. By following this false king instead of actually surrendering to God. And then you have Joab, who's a picture of everything that we're so used to in the world. He's a picture of worldly power and force. He's going to use his influence. He's going to use his muscle. He's going to do whatever it takes to protect protect his future. He's going to politic in the worst possible way. And between those three guys, what we have is this coup attempt where everything's broken and everything in Israel starts to look like the nations instead of God's chosen people who are supposed to be different than the nations. And then we have a contrast. What happens in the story is Bathsheba hears about it. She goes to David and gets a group of guys to appeal to David and David acts. Now look at this in 1st King chapter 1 verse 38. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites And the Peliphites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule, and they brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Okay, look, this false king, he says, I'm gonna get on a war horse and I'm gonna get 50 men to run in front of me and I'm gonna have chariots. I'm gonna flex like the kings of the world flex. I'm gonna show people how bad I am, how handsome I am, how amazing I am. I'm going to exalt myself. Well, the contrast of Solomon's crazy. They don't put him on a war horse, they put him on a donkey, a symbol of peace and humility. And he rides in as a contrast to the false king as the true king, the real son of David that was really called to the throne. But if you know the story, you know that Solomon didn't end up being a true king. Solomon blew it at every turn. He departed from God. Instead of protecting the worship of the temple, he corrupted the worship of the temple with idols. Scripture tells us that his heart was led astray as he married foreign women women that weren't Jewish, that didn't share his faith. And he had this incredible problem with like concubines and wives and polygamy. And that led him to not following God and corrupting the nation of Israel. Like he totally blows it. He becomes a false king. And that leads us to the triumphal entry. Jesus, in a group of people that would have heard of Solomon's entry, in a group of people that would have heard the... the prophecy of Zechariah that the king of Israel would ride into her humble and seated on a donkey in the midst of all that, Jesus shows up on a donkey. What's happening? Well, what's happening is Jesus is showing up as the true thing. And the true thing shows up the counterfeit to be the counterfeit. Jesus, unlike Solomon, Jesus, the true son of David, is going to show up And instead of corrupting the worship of God in the temple, he's going to cleanse the temple. Instead of using worldly power, he's going to actually expose the vanity of Rome's worldly power. Instead of Jesus marrying a harem of wives and corrupting the people of God, Jesus is going to be faithful to his one bride, the church, and he's going to cleanse her and perfect her. And in the midst of all that, Jesus, the true king, the true priest, and the true warrior exposes the fact that all the kingdoms of the world have it totally backwards. We think it's in exalting ourselves. We think it's in our strength. We think it's in our power. And here's Jesus, the son of God who created everything out of nothing, humbling himself and riding on a donkey and showing up to cleanse the temple of God. Jesus is the true king. And this leads us to the last idea. And this is where it gets hard for our hearts. Because for them and for us, Jesus was and is a misunderstood king. He was a misunderstood king. What the crowds wanted from Jesus, Jesus didn't do. And honestly, what the disciples wanted from Jesus, Jesus didn't do. Look how weird this story ends in verse 11. So the crowds just went off. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is his coming kingdom. And Jesus does something really weird. It says he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, here's what's happening. This is wild. By this point in the story of Israel, their expectation was that the coming Messiah would be a political earthly ruler who would beat up the Romans. He would usher in a golden age of Judaism. He would make them wealthy and powerful. He would lead them into battle. And so when they say, Hosanna to the son of David, Jesus is showing up and they're thinking, Oh, it's on. He's going to kick Rome out of Israel. He's going to bring in this golden age of prosperity. He's going to make our dreams come true. Life is finally going to get easy for us. And by the way, Jesus' own disciples, although he told them he was going to go to the cross, that's what they're still thinking he's going to do. And instead of doing that, it's so anticlimactic. He goes to the temple and in Mark's account, he just kind of looks around for a while and then once the crowds die down and it gets quiet late at night, he just kind of walks out the back door and goes back to camping with the 12 guys that he got there with. It's weird. Like, if you were a PR firm, you would have to really help Jesus with his messaging and marketing. Jesus is blowing it. He's missing an epic opportunity. Now's the moment. He's got the crowd on his side. Everybody's watching. Now the moment for him to do his biggest miracle. Now's the moment for him to tell the crowds that he's here as their savior and to follow him no matter what. Now's the moment to do something big and brash and shocking. Now's the moment to call down fire against the Romans. And the triumphal entry, it starts really big and then it ends really quiet. Jesus just walks out, walks out the back door with the 12 guys that he got there with and they go to this little village and probably eat some fish and turn in for dinner. It's weird. Jesus is not meeting the expectations of the crowd. He's not beating up Rome. And he's not meeting the expectations of his disciples to just clothe himself in blatant glory and splendor and power. In fact, Jesus is doing something really wild. Jesus is bringing an upside-down kingdom in which he's going to have to die to enter into his glory. And in this moment, here's what we see, that Jesus didn't show up to make the lives of his disciples easier. And I need you to track with me here. Because we've been so shaped and formed by a a psychologizing of the Christian faith that's twisted it to be this deal where Jesus is like, like Jesus showed up to just be our life coach that makes everything better for us. And Dylan said it last week really well. We've turned Jesus into a means to an end. Like if we worship Jesus and follow Jesus, he will get us all the things we need to be happy If you're single and you really want to be married, then just pray the right prayers and follow Jesus. And we might not say that as crassly as I'm saying it, but we believe it. Or if you just follow Jesus, he'll give you success in your career. He'll keep you safe. You won't get sick. You'll get promoted. You'll make enough money. And most of the people in our church, they're not going to be like blatant prosperity gospel people. It's not like we think Jesus is guaranteed to get us like a Rolls Royce or a private jet. We're not going to Kenneth Copeland out on that deal. But still, we think, hey, man, if I follow Jesus, life will basically be better and easier. But here's what's crazy. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't make his disciples' lives better or easier. He's going to lead them into more persecution. He's going to lead them into a crushing. He's going to lead them into their entire life experiencing what it's like to be strangers and exiles in this world. And he doesn't, I mean, he eventually topples Rome, but he takes about 360 years to do so through the spreading of the gospel as Rome just gets converted. He's a misunderstood king. And I think the point that I'm trying to get at, and maybe it's not even the biggest point in the passage, which is a dangerous thing for a pastor to say, but I think it's there. I think the thing that's happening in the triumphal entry and the way Jesus turns the tables and the kind of kingdom he's bringing, I think what we gotta know is that like it's possible to have everything in the world. The approval of people, acclaim, money, like the kind of money where you can get all the experiences that we all wanna get, the right Airbnb, the right location, the right meal, You can have a great marriage, and you can have great kids. You can check every box in your career. You can get everything. But the story of the triumphal entry and the story of the entire Bible is if you have everything but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. Because his kingdom's the only kingdom that lasts. He is the desire of the nations. He is the treasure that we long for. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. The opposite is also true, that you can have nothing, nothing. You can be stripped down to such a degree that you lose your money. You lose your health. You lose your health. You don't have the family you dreamed of. Your career falls apart. All of that stuff can happen. There's no guarantee it won't. And if you have Jesus, the claim of Scripture is you have everything. Everything. but that's not the kind of kingdom that we want, right? His kingdom is not earthly, although it advances on the earth. His kingdom is heavenly, and it advances in the earth by changing what we love and changing how we live and changing what we think the success story of life is. Jesus's triumphal entry is the opposite of making up and to the right the goal of life. I mean, I'm not anti career success. I'm not anti if you want to get married, I hope you find a great spouse. That stuff's good. But the claim of Scripture, the witness of Scripture, is that to have Christ is to have all things. And the kind of kingdom he came to bring is not a guaranteed easy button for life, it's a guaranteed overthrow of sin, Satan, and death. And it's a guaranteed process of waiting until the great day. There are so many desires that you have in your heart that are good, that are not going to be met until the kingdom gets here in its fullness. I mean, even like some desires that we can get kind of close to in this life, like the desire to be fully known and still loved by people. I mean, in Christian community and in a healthy marriage, we can get really close to that. But the totality of that, that's a good desire that God put in your heart. The totality of that is not coming until the great day. There's so many places where the things that we desire were placed in us to point us to hopeful longing and waiting for the great day. Jesus, in his first triumphal entry, came in on a donkey with terms of peace for the world. Revelation 19 tells us that as his second coming, he will return on a war horse to make war against evil. Scripture tells us that it'll be a bad day for people that won't bow their knee to him. It's it's true. And we live in this moment where we get to decide what kind of kingdom we want to be a part of. Counterfeit, power, ease, wealth or the hard road of following Jesus that's eternally worth it.